0: Now let's open our Bibles again to Matthew's Gospel, and I have told you that as I've entered into these middle chapters that I'm being a bit more selective and not preaching every passage in order, but you also will notice this morning that I'm preaching a passage out of order. I'm actually returning to chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. I wanted more time to think about it, pray about it, and to understand a few things before preaching it. We come to chapter 19, verses 1 through 12. Let's bow before the Lord before reading. Our Father, we, your people, and this minister, needs the work of your Holy Spirit within our lives. And we ask that that Holy Spirit poured out upon your church at Pentecost, who indwells us, will now be effectually working within our hearts to bring us to a deeper realization of our need of Christ, granting to us faith and repentance and joy in the Lord and obedience in our walk. And we pray that lost people among us this day would be confronted with their need and put their trust in Christ alone. May you enable them to do so, for we ask it in the name of the only Savior of sinners, the head and king of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. I need not quote statistics on divorce to convince us that this text is not tangential to our lives. The crushing pain of divorce touches all of us as members of this church Some of the most godly people in our midst have endured this pain of being sinned against by wrongful divorce, and we love them and share their burdens. Our culture has made it almost as easy to obtain a divorce as it is to marry to begin with, and our culture has no understanding of marriage and how God designed men and women. That is the result of the abandonment of God's word. Confusion reigns in the area of sexuality and the roles of men and women. And there is only one standard here, and that is the standard of God's holy and errant word. Man's call as husband is to love, nurture, lead, and provide for his wife and to protect her. Woman is as wife to submit and to be man's helper. But then there's Genesis 3. There is the fall of man in Adam When sin entered into the world and changed everything, and in Genesis 3.16 we have these familiar words where God speaks to the woman saying, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children, your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, in Genesis 3.16, when it says that her desire will be toward her husband, it does not mean a desire for love and companionship, but it means a desire to usurp and to dominate. The same word is used in chapter 4. The next chapter, verse 7, when we read, If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. And so in a fallen world, in marriage, women usurp roles that do not belong to them. And in marriage, men can become domineering or hinpecked, one of the two. The only answer to all of this confusion, to all of this misunderstanding and all of this sin, is the gospel-redeemed marriage. The only answer is the text that I preached a few Sunday evenings ago from Ephesians 5, in which Paul, the apostle by divine inspiration, says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. The only answer ultimately is having the mind of Christ, this Christ who so humbled himself that he went to a cross and shed his blood to redeem us, and husbands who so love their wives that they sacrificially love and women, wives, who submit to their husbands after the pattern of the church's call to submit to Christ and to be the helper of their husbands. Now, we come to this text, Matthew chapter 19, and we especially want our youth to understand this text and to apply it to their lives and to their futures. So let's work our way through the text. And the first thing that we see is the Pharisees test Jesus. We read in verse 3, and Pharisees came up to him and tested him by saying, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? The Pharisees' attitude toward Jesus, you know, back in chapter twelve fourteen, was their determination to destroy him. And so we read in verse 3 that they came to Jesus testing him. They want to humiliate him. Uh, they want to show that he is opposed to the law of Moses, which, of course, he is not. He's the fulfiller of the law. Now, divorce was common among the Jews in Jesus' day. With the Bible in hand, they missed the whole point of marriage. There was a minority viewpoint, the school of Shammai, that said that marriage might be dissolved because of adultery or serious moral failure. But the predominant, overwhelming, popular view was the school of Hillel that allowed divorce on trivial grounds. And I mean really trivial grounds. A wife, for example, could overcook the supper and the man might divorce his wife for it. Uh, One rabbi said, if a husband finds another woman that is fairer than his wife, then he may divorce his wife and marry this more beautiful woman. So this is the test that they're bringing before the Lord Jesus. They want everyone to see that he is acting contrary to the tradition of the elders and contrary to their interpretation of the law of God. Now, working our way, the second thing we see is that Jesus responds with God's word, which should not surprise us. And we read it in verses 4 through 6. Let's read it again. Jesus answered, Have you not read that He who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. What do the scriptures teach, you Pharisees? You're setting yourself over against what the Bible teaches, what God has said. Divorce is not God's plan. And so he quotes Genesis 127 and Genesis 224. And in quoting those, he gives to us four biblical reasons that marriage is inviolable. The first reason is this. Marriage is inviolable because God created them male and female. Now, male and female is in the emphatic position in the Hebrew text. Basically, you could read it this way, the one male, but one female. That is to say that multiple partners or parties were never a part of God's plan for marriage. Marriage is grounded in the male-female constitution. The second reason that marriage is inviolable is because of this principle of leaving and cleaving. God says to Adam, as history develops, this is going to be the pattern. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave unto his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is God's intended norm. The Hebrew word devak means to stick, to cling, to adhere. And so the husband is to stick to, to adhere, to cleave to his wife. The third reason that marriage is inviolable is because of the one-flesh relationship. The two will become one flesh. They belong to each other. They possess one another. Or as we read in Malachi this morning, chapter 2, the marriage relationship is a covenant relationship. And the fourth reason that Jesus gives by quoting this passage about the inviolability of marriage is that God joins together married couples. God's design is the permanence of marriage. And so destroying marriage is destroying God's design and purpose for us. You who may be here this morning who are living in adultery against your wife or against your husband. Or who are planning in your mind to desert your spouse. You see, there's more at play here than you think. God sees your heart. God says that this is not to happen God is the witness of the mistreatment of your spouse. And so he says, what God has joined together, let no man pull asunder. Carinzo, let no man separate. Let no man divide. Marriage is not a contract. It's not a money-back guarantee, return if not satisfied, a trial offer. It is a one-flesh relationship between one man and one woman. One plus one equals one is the divine math of marriage. As an indivisible unit, therefore, you may not opt for going your own way, choosing to dissolve the marriage, or transferring your affections to another object. Marriage is intended to be a union until death us do part. Behind its sanctity is the authority of Almighty God and the declarations of His Word. And so Jesus quotes Holy Scripture from the beginning. This is what God says, and this is what God has intended. Marriage, then, is God's design. Divorce is sinful man's design. God permits, never commands, but permits divorce in two instances. When there is sexual immorality, as we read in verse 9, whosoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And by divine inspiration, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 7, where an unbelieving spouse deserts a believing spouse. Now, where there is a biblically justifiable reason for divorce, there is biblical permission to remarry in the Lord. Now, moving on in the text, the next thing we see is Jesus explaining Moses. These Pharisees have appealed to God's word too, haven't they? They have appealed to Moses, have they not? The Pharisees appealed to Moses in verse 7. Look at it. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now I want you to notice, they have completely set aside Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. The Pharisees are not concerned with what Jesus has just taught, they are not concerned with understanding marriage as God intended it from the beginning. They completely set aside what God says in the beginning was His plan and was His norm and remains His norm. They're unconcerned with it. They are perverters of the Word of God. They go to one passage in the Old Testament, and they make use of that one passage so that they can justify easy divorce. Deuteronomy 24, 1-4, Moses is talking about remarriage, and he is addressing a particular instance, a particular case. And he says the reason for divorce is indecency, which relates probably to sexual impurity, falling short of intercourse, something shameful, something offensive. But the point is the Pharisees want to take that word indecency and they want to extend it to any inconvenience that might be found in a wife. If she talks to another man, if she lets down her hair in public, if she oversalts the food, that's indecency and we may divorce our wives. That's what the Pharisees were doing. And there is no command except as it relates to remarriage, and that's in Deuteronomy 24.4. So Jesus explains to them in verse 8. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, marriage allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not So, the permission was not to their credit. It was because of the hardness of their hearts and their sin. Divorce was never required, nor did God encourage it. But hear this, you Pharisees, looking for excuses for easy divorce. God's design from the beginning was that there be two One man, one woman joined, never separated. Divorce except for adultery, Jesus says in verse 9. The word is porneia, and that means fornicative sin. Divorce for any other reason is forbidden. He said that also in Matthew 5, 32. And so, illicit sexual activity by a spouse is justifiable reason for divorce. Never commanded, but permitted. Divorce on other grounds, aside from desertion, 1 Corinthians 7, Is wrong. Is it appropriate for the innocent party to remarry? Now, Jesus is not addressing that here, and I can't go into it, but I want to answer the question briefly. I believe that the Bible teaches that where there is biblically justifiable reason for divorce, the innocent party may remarry in the Lord. Now, the Pharisees, however, are encouraging the proliferation of divorce. And the proliferation of adultery. Notice how Jesus puts it in verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality, marries another, commits adultery. Unbiblical divorce and unbiblical remarriage. In reality, they care nothing for God's law. They are breakers of the seventh commandment. They were punctilious about the bill of divorce, of course. But their hearts were filled with the bile of bitterness and they did not follow the law of God or the purpose of God for marriage according to the Old Testament. No wonder they wanted to kill Jesus. Everything Jesus teaches is contrary to what they want to do and the direction of their lives, which is complete self-centeredness. The Pharisees ignored such passages as the one we read this morning from Malachi chapter 2. One of the old commentators, T.V. Moore, says about that passage in Malachi, by a bold and beautiful figure, Malachi represents the guilty husbands as covering the altars of God with the tears and cries of their injured wives, so that the offering on the altar cannot be seen by God. The mute supplication of a sacrifice may rise to invoke a blessing on the offerer, but above it, And rising first to heaven is the language of injured innocence that calls down a curse on the man who has wronged the helpless and confiding wife of his youth. The basic problem then with the Pharisee is that he did not love his wife, and behind that he did not love God. And sinful human nature has not changed. Let me ask, is there some man here this morning and you do not love your wife? You know, the issue really is you do not love God. You are a needy soul in need of a redeemer, in need of a savior, in need of the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. Don't harden your heart when you hear this. This is your fundamental and basic need. You need converting. You need Christ. You need a new and renewed heart. And if there is someone here who is saying within his soul, I did this, I so sinned against my spouse, you need the cleansing blood of Christ. And I proclaim to you, there is forgiveness with God. But there is no forgiveness if you continue in your sin and do not believe and do not repent. There is only forgiveness at the cross of Christ. Now today... As in Jesus' time, easy divorce is obtainable, and we need to remember that God says this is contrary to His will except for the biblical reasons prescribed. Even then it is permitted, it is never commanded. Well, we're just incompatible, Pastor. You just don't understand. You don't get it. Listen, no two sinners are compatible. The Lord calls His people to the hard work of learning to live by grace and to love a sinner and to be loved, though we are sinners. Isn't that true in marriage? Isn't it true in all relationships, in a fallen world? And you need to remember this too. The state, the government, the state, and the church, when the church is biblical, hold different viewpoints on the grounds of divorce. The state is wrong. The government is wrong. I know people who think if the government approves something, it must be right. It must be moral for me to to do. The Christian may not buy into the world's view on this, but must stay in the orbit of God's Word. What does God's Word teach? How do I need to bring my heart into conformity with the Word of God? Now, as we work our way through the text, the fourth thing we see is the disciples' conclusion. And they say in verse 10, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry In other words, they hear what Jesus is saying and it's so contrary to all they've learned and all they've been taught by the rabbis that they make this conclusion. Look, if marriage is for life and only permissible for adultery and never required, it's better not to marry, better not to get in that situation. They're influenced by their culture of easy divorce. They're influenced by the teaching of the rabbis. They thought marriage was all about them. They thought marriage was all about satisfying themselves, and they have no basis for commitment. And Jesus comes along, and Jesus says, I'm teaching you radical discipleship. Yeah, I'm teaching you what God says from the beginning is the norm. I am setting aside the tradition of the elders because it's unbiblical. I am teaching you radical discipleship. And Jesus says that only to certain people is singleness given. He says there are eunuchs. Well, look at it here. He says in verse 12, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have, been, who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Eunuchs, he means there, those who are congenitally incapable of the sexual union. By the way, this has nothing to do with homosexuality. That's a modern read into the text. It was the farthest thing from Jesus' mind. The homosexual orientation is not innate, and it is not irreversible. It is not being a eunuch. It is a choice. And if there is someone here who is caught in that sin... With all of the forthrightness of the good news of Jesus Christ and the compassion of the Savior I say to you believe and repent God can and will change your heart. He's talking about those congenitally incapable of the sexual union not homosexuality. And then he says there are those who are made eunuchs by men, you know, such as harem guards for example. And there there are eunuchs for God's kingdom, a rare call to celibacy for God's kingdom. I can give you an example of that. Let's say there's a, a man or a woman that's about to go into a missionary situation in which it is almost certain they will not live long. A man or a woman might say, In that situation, I choose not to marry for the sake of the kingdom of God. But this isn't the norm. And of course, there's also the providential provision of a spouse, and God does not always providentially provide a spouse. And Jesus says, Ordinarily, It is God's plan that men and women marry, and that when they marry, they marry for life. Let those who have this gift accept it, accept God's word on marriage. The unsaved cannot accept it deep down within the heart because they do not have the Holy Spirit. Now that expounds the text, but we're not done. I want to make a fifth point that I think is really essential. What underlies Jesus' teaching? and why does it matter? What underlies Jesus' teaching, and why does it matter? What underlies what Jesus says here in this passage, what Paul says in Ephesians 5, what the New Testament everywhere teaches on marriage, is God's everlasting covenant of grace with his own people redeemed by the blood of Jesus. What underlies everything that Jesus says is God's promise to be a covenant God to his people, never leaving and never forsaking his people. It's God who says to Israel, as a bridegroom rejoices over her bride, so do I rejoice over you, O Israel. It's God saying through the prophet Hosea, I will betroth you to me forever. And he draws them with bands of love to himself. It's God's everlasting covenant love to his own people. You know, we take vows today, and I think when some people take vows, they read it this way. We promise to stay married as long as love lasts. And love is defined in sappy, sentimental ways, a far cry from till death us do part. When they say it, they sort of say it like this within their minds. Now listen. While holding the line on what the scriptures teach, we must never treat unbiblical divorce as an unforgivable sin. The church welcomes forgiven, repentant sinners into her fold. But my purpose in preaching this text is that we develop conviction on this matter. Let Hosea, who loved his wayward wife, be your model. Let the cross Be your motive. Let God's covenant determine what love is. And what did God's covenant show us about love? Covenant love was shown to you when you were ungodly. Covenant love was shown to you when you were ugly in your sin. Covenant love was shown to you when you were rebellious and the church's husband willingly took nails and thorns and spear and the wrath of Almighty God in order that through his loving sacrifice he might redeem his people to himself, that is covenant love. And so covenant love says, I am with you through your successes, I am with you through your failures, I am with you through your struggles, I am with you through your blessings, I will nourish you, I will protect you, I will help you, I will support you. Which especially should be the attitude of Christian husbands toward their wives as we are called to reflect the love that Christ has shown in shedding his own blood to redeem his covenant people. Christian marriage is about the story of redemption. To put it bluntly, in other words, marriage is not about you. Marriage is about Christ. Now, There are very few people, I think, who are living unbiblically in their marriages that wake up one morning and think, I have a theological problem here. But you should, because you do. At root, at the core of it all, you have a theological problem. The problem is not ultimately your spouse or even your heart attitude toward your spouse, the problem is vertical. The problem is your relationship with God. Get that straight, the other will clear up. Get that straight, you can act biblically. Get that straight, and you can love as God calls you to love. Be the spouse that God has called you to be. Maybe the other doesn't believe in repent, but you can, and you can be what God calls you to be. You know, you can get all the right techniques. There's a lot out there about marriage techniques. It's everywhere, shelf after shelf after shelf. You can do all the right things. You can rekindle feelings for your spouse. You can go through the right techniques and never deal with the fundamental problem, which is your heart before God. You can mask the whole thing. You can have what appears to be a good marriage. You can restore a marriage. You can have all the right techniques, but you need to be converted. You need to be transformed. You need to be changed in your relationship with God. The real issue is theological. The real issue is vertical. As God's ambassador this morning, preaching his word to his people, I bring to us all a call to faithfulness. And I want you to hear... Hear this well. It is God's own truth from my mouth. Don't hear it as from me. Hear it as from your covenant head and king. A call to faithfulness. A call to Christian discipleship. And this goes to everyone in our congregation, whether you are married or not yet married. Whether you are single or have endured a divorce. Whether you are young or... Whether you are old, whether you are male, whether you are female, it goes to every believer in Jesus in this place. Be faithful to the Lord of the covenant. Do not adulterate in your relationship with your Lord. Marriage pictures something far greater than the relationship between man and woman It pictures the relationship that Christ the King has to his people, his bride purchased with his own blood. And every believer is a part of that relationship and it applies to everyone that is here. Oh, do you not see why I am pleading before God day and night? And I mean at night, through the night. Not sleeping, tossing, turning, crying out, Oh God, send that massive revival that your church needs in our culture today. Bless my congregation with a powerful outpouring of your Holy Spirit today. Because the church looks like the world. We are unwilling to die to self. This is a crisis hour the church has lost Her reverence for God. And all around the country, men are in pulpits during this hour laughing and telling jokes and making people feel good about themselves. God pity us when they should be saying, believe and repent and trust. Because the church, broadly speaking, no longer reflects on the rotten corruption of the world around us by righteous living And that's our call, to reflect on the darkness of the world around us by living in the light. We do not take the holy God seriously anymore, and so we do not take marriage seriously and a host of other things. And so the call from God's ambassador to you, Christ's call through his minister to you, believer, count the cost. Following Christ means that He is Lord, not you, not me. It means saying no to temptation. Following the Lordship of Christ means saying no to sin. It means saying no to the world. It means giving up self. It means dying to self. It means breaking with the crowd It means standing alone. It means being faithful, and it means being faithful in our marriages and in our relationships. The call to discipleship means, I do not belong to myself. I am purchased with the shed blood of Jesus Christ. It means that your mind belongs to Jesus, Christian It means that your heart belongs to Jesus. It means that your affections belong to Jesus. It means that your plans belong to Jesus. It means that your purposes belong to Him who loved you and gave Himself for you and purchased you with His own shed blood from the cross. And so the challenge that comes from this pulpit to your heart, your heart, My heart, your heart, think of yourself, don't think of your neighbor, the challenge that comes to your heart from God's word this morning is this, we are a part of the bride of Christ and to be a part of the bride of Christ means that we are divorced from the world I mean this world system, its ungodly way of thinking and acting. We are divorced from the world. We are married to Christ. And therefore, be done with your spiritual lethargy. Kindle again your fervor for Christ. Set your hearts glowing with gospel fire. Someone may say within his heart, I used to be like that. There was a time when I was like that. There was a time where I loved my devotion to Christ and I loved my Lord and communed with Him. There was a time when I walked faithfully. There was a time when I shared the gospel with others. There was a time when I was on fire for Jesus Christ. But that's been a long, long time ago. Someone needs to admit you've never been converted. There's no shame in that. Come to Christ now. Someone needs to say, I'm just dead in trespasses and sins, and God maybe is bringing you to life even at this moment. Some Christian needs to say, I'm just way, way, way down asleep. And I don't want to be roused. I don't want to be awakened. You've lost your reverence for God. Sin has entered your heart. And there are some Christians here, no doubt you're pretty sick. You're pretty sick. The challenge. Be done with your spiritual lethargy. Kindle again your fervor for Christ. Set your hearts glowing with gospel fire. And just in case you missed it, the challenge, be done. With your spiritual lethargy, kindle again your fervor for Christ, set your hearts glowing with gospel fire. And he comes through his word to you, lost sinners who are among the people of God today, and he says, Lay down the weapons of your warfare at my feet, you cannot win. Lay down your weapons. Embrace my son by saving faith. Come to the cross and trust in him. Will you not? If not, I want you to hear this. We are told in Revelation 19 that Jesus Christ is the faithful and true. And he is coming again on a white horse. And his eyes are like a flaming fire. And he is clothed in a vestment dipped in. In blood, he has a name, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he will cast into hell those who oppose him. Oh, see your need for Christ. See your need for the Redeemer. See your need for the Savior. Be divorced from the world. Be married to Christ. Look with faith. Look with faith upon a crucified Savior. Look with faith. Upon a crucified Christ. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.